The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On Sunday, February 24, 1980, 50-year-old Jack Bannister and his son, Jack Jr., went on an expedition to go panning for gold. They set out from Jack Sr.'s home in Yakult to a quite remote area of Clark County, Washington, to sift through the pebbles in the Fly Creek area near Amboy. Around noon, as they were trekking around looking for promising areas to pan, one of the Jacks spotted something in a hillside ravine above Fly Creek. To their horror, it was a quite clearly human skull. The Bannisters trekked back to their car parked on the roadside and drove the few minutes down the winding, densely wooded road to the Chalachi Prairie General Store, where Jack Sr. called the Clark County Sheriff's Office. When the deputies arrived, the Bannisters led them to the site where they had seen the skull. It was, indeed, the remnants of a person. Let's get a good understanding of the setting so we can grasp where these bones were located. As I said, this was in a very undeveloped area of Clark County, which is still true today. Fly Creek runs through national forest land, private timberlands, and state-owned Department of Natural Resources areas. The Bannisters found Fly Creek Jane Doe, for so she came to be called, in the Chalachi Prairie area outside Amboy. According to an article in the Columbian, dated February 26, 1980, quote, the bones were found along Fly Creek just south of Forestry Road 54 at Canyon Creek Bridge, end quote. This was right near the spot where Canyon Creek and Fly Creek converged. The skull was near a roadside turnout close to Fly Creek. Sergeant Fred Neiman Jr. of the CCSO, who has worked this case for 10 years, told me that Forestry Road 54 crosses Canyon Creek via a small bridge, and right before the bridge, there's a small access road that runs parallel to and above Fly Creek along the hillside. That is where Fly Creek Jane Doe was found. The area was covered with thick woods, and hikers, campers, and fishermen would not expect to see another person all day long. But the Jacks did see someone, someone dead. Upon visual confirmation that the Bannisters had found a human skull, 
Clark County Sheriff's deputies put their boots on and conducted a thorough ground search for additional human remains. And they did find some more bones. Chief Criminal Deputy Chuck Brink said, quote, The skull was found about 200 feet south of Fly Creek, and the other bones were spread about 100 feet beyond that, end quote. Deputies searched the area for close to two weeks. This from the March 4, 1980 edition of the Columbian, quote, Dogs trained to sniff out human remains will comb the Fly Creek area in northern Clark County Saturday in an effort to unearth additional clues as to the identity of a partial human skeleton found there last week. The dogs are from the Northwest Search Dogs, an organization of private citizens. Sergeant Robert Rayburn said the animals are specifically trained to locate bones and grave sites, end quote. They also used a special search unit from the Portland PD, but in the end, when they called off the search, they had found only a few bones, and some of them turned out to be animal bones. Photographs were taken of every bone in place before it was removed and of the surroundings and the setting. No one could tell initially whether the skeletal remains belonged to a male or a female, and it wasn't readily apparent how long the bones had been there. No tissue remained on the bones whatsoever, and in fact, some of them had verdant moss growing on the porous surfaces. An expert was brought in from the Southwestern Washington Research Unit in Hazel Dell to examine the bones on site. This expert estimated that the bones had been in the elements for more than a year, possibly as much as 15 months. It's now believed that the bones could have been there for close to three years. Finally, the bones were carefully removed and delivered to the Clark County ME's office, where Coroner Arch Hamilton examined them closely with the help of an anthropologist. His determination, after exhaustive review of the remains, which consisted of just the skull, some vertebrae, and some rib bones, was that they likely belonged to a girl between the ages of 13 and 18 years, probably around 15 and 16. The official cause of death of Fly Creek Jane Doe has never been released, but Sergeant Fred Neiman of the Clark County Sheriff's Office told me that death resulted from trauma to the skull, and this trauma was visible to anyone who viewed the skull. The Columbian reported that Fly Creek Jane Doe was shot in the head, but this has never been confirmed by law enforcement, and whether any bullets or shell casings were recovered from the site has never been addressed. Coroner Arch Hamilton also noted tooth and claw marks on some of the bones. Animal predation, rather than dismemberment by human hand, is believed to be responsible for the manner in which the bones were spread around, although I was told that this is not 100% certain. The fact is, there's a lot we still don't know about Fly Creek Jane Doe. Not a single scrap of clothing or any personal items believed to have belonged to her or to be connected to her killer were located in the vicinity of her body. It seems likely that when she arrived at the location where she was found, she had nothing with her, not even clothing. Sergeant Neiman and I discussed how Jane Doe got to where she lay. Since she died from head trauma and may have been nude, it's possible that she was killed in a secondary location and then driven to the Fly Creek area. If indeed the area was selected as a dump site, it was because of its remoteness. The killer, likely someone local who was familiar with the area, would know how few people frequented that particular stretch of the creek. And under cover of night, he could easily have pulled over on the deserted roadside and dumped Jane Doe's body into the wooded ravine and hoped that no one would ever find her. And even if they did find her, 
they might not be able to figure out who she was, since no identifying objects or materials were left behind. On the other hand, it was possible that Fly Creek Jane Doe was in the area with someone perhaps camping, and she was killed and her body left in the woods. However, it does seem as though if that were the case, crime scene investigators would have found some scrap of clothing. Even if all textile materials had completely deteriorated, usually hardier notions like zippers, snaps, buttons, elastic, and so on, remain behind. But none were found. Fly Creek Jane Doe was likely deliberately discarded without these physical clues to her identity by someone who wanted to cover his tracks. And it worked. Authorities could not identify Fly Creek Jane Doe. Throughout the next few months, sheriff's deputies pursued missing persons reports from neighboring jurisdictions and checked with other area agencies for missing teens. As I mentioned, it was felt that the person who left Fly Creek Jane Doe where she was found was almost certainly a local, which greatly increased the chances that she, too, was from the area. It was initially thought that the bones might belong to missing Vancouver High School student Jamie Grissom, last seen in 1971 as she headed towards school. This was because her disappearance was well publicized in the area, and some of her personal items, including her purse and ID, had been found in May 1972 in Dole Valley near Yakult, the same general vicinity where Fly Creek Jane Doe's remains were found. This from the March 4, 1980 Columbian. Sheriff's deputies said today the bones probably do not belong to Jamie Grissom, who disappeared in 1971, as they once suspected. A sister of the girl was located this week, and descriptions she offered appeared not to match that of the remains found last week. Dental records expected to arrive later today will probably confirm that the skull is not that of Miss Grissom, a spokesman said, end quote. This proved to be correct. The general consensus based on dental records was that Fly Creek Jane Doe was not Jamie Grissom. According to an article in The Columbian in the fall of 1980, one Clark County detective spoke about the extensive dental work Fly Creek Jane Doe had had done in hopes it would ring a bell with someone. Quote, One unusual aspect of the girl's mouth is that her left canine, or fang tooth, is pushed forward one position so that it is right next to her front teeth, and looks overly large, end quote. It was hoped that a local dentist who worked on a teenage female patient might remember that. The girl also had three fillings, which were estimated to have been done sometime between 1963 and 1969. Clark County Coroner Arch Hamilton sent Fly Creek Jane Doe's skull to the University of Oregon Medical Center. There, a medical illustrator, Joe Ito, drew detailed images of the skull and teeth. From the Columbian, quote, The drawings are being sent to dental journals across the country with the hope that a dentist will recognize the dental work, end quote. I'm not sure why photographs instead of drawings weren't used, but the drawings are very detailed. Anyway, it was apparent that the young murder victim had clearly had regular trips to the dentist and cared for her teeth. Based on assessments by experts who examined the remains, investigators came to suspect that Fly Creek Jane Doe was of Native American or possibly Asian heritage. This was because of some particular aspect of her bone structure, but it would turn out to be incorrect. It was also suspected that she had been an athlete or a laborer because her skeleton bore signs that she had enlarged neck muscles, according to KATU. 
As for suspects, I'm going to address what all you true crime junkies are thinking. This is from the Columbian, quote, Chief Criminal Deputy Chuck Brink of the County Sheriff's Office dismissed any connection of Sunday's find with the Ted murders, a series of at least 19 unsolved murders of co-eds or young working women in Washington, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, and Florida, end quote. We all know who was responsible for the Ted murders in this part of the country, Ted Bundy. For a time, it was thought that he might have killed Fly Creek Jane Doe, but he turned out to have been in Florida around the time we now know she was murdered. I don't know how the Green River killer Gary Ridgway was ruled out, but he operated three hours away and was not known to be in the area where Fly Creek Jane Doe was found. Finally, there was another very good suspect, a potential serial killer named Warren Forrest. I'll touch on him more in a little bit. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. A composite sketch of Fly Creek Jane Doe by a forensic sketch artist was circulated in the media, but no tips paid off. Years passed. In 2005, Nickmeck created a facial reconstruction of Fly Creek Jane Doe and continued to ask the public for leads. A piece on KATU in that same year contained some more information from a Sergeant Craig Hogman with the Clark County Sheriff's Department. Examination of Fly Creek Jane Doe's remains over the years had narrowed down the time frame in which she was believed to have been born to between the years 1964 and 1966, and the time she died to between December of 1978 and April of 1979. The original coroner's estimation that she was between 15 and 16 years old at the time of her death was believed to be accurate. And by this point in time, 2005, a DNA profile of Fly Creek Jane Doe had been prepared. Laboratory technicians had been able to extract DNA from Fly Creek Jane Doe's teeth. Now, 25 years after she was found, investigators were comparing her DNA to that of three missing girls to either rule out that they were Jane Doe or confirm her identity. What happened was investigators released an updated composite of Fly Creek Jane Doe in honor of the 25th anniversary and three families called in and asked if their missing loved ones could be Fly Creek Jane Doe. Laboratory tests were conducted to run the comparisons. Two of the missing girls were Jamie Grissom, who still had never been found, and 14-year-old Sherry Wyant. The third girl was not named by police. DNA from the families of the three missing teens was sent to the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification Project, which performs testing on unidentified human remains and family member reference samples pursuant to a DOJ grant. Results in 2006 ruled out all three girls as Fly Creek Jane Doe. Many other Jane Doe's were compared to Fly Creek Jane Doe over the years, after she was listed in the NCI database NamUs and NICMEC. None of them were ever a match. Additional facial reconstructions over the years also led nowhere. In 2016, Dr. Nikki Costa of the Clark County Medical Examiner's Office again made use of new technology to try to identify Fly Creek Jane Doe. 
she commissioned a new knick-knack reconstruction of the girl's likeness that created a 3D image of Fly Creek Jane Doe based on her skull structure. The resulting image looked lifelike, but still did not result in any helpful leads. In 2019, it was time to enlist Parabon. Cold Case Detective Lindsay Schultz of the Clark County Sheriff's Office requested Parabon to work up a phenotype of Fly Creek Jane Doe. DNA samples taken from the teeth in the skull found by the banisters was sufficient to generate a SNP profile, which indicated that Fly Creek Jane Doe was of Northern European descent, with fair, unfreckled skin, brown hair, and brown or hazel eyes. She was not, as had been believed, Native American. In this case, I was able to get some specific details on the forensic genealogy that eventually identified Fly Creek Jane Doe. Parabon did the work. Just so listeners know, there is a movement away from the use of the term matches because it is found to be confusing. The terms genetic association or DNA relative are used instead. Anyway, when Fly Creek Jane Doe's DNA was uploaded to GEDmatch, the genealogist saw that the top DNA relative was a male who shared 110 centimorgans in common with Jane Doe. This made him a probable second cousin once removed, and he was located in Washington State. This was promising, of course. The second closest DNA relative to Jane Doe was a woman in Vancouver, Canada, who shared only 46 centimorgans in common with her. Not very much. But this second DNA relative's mother was also in GEDmatch, and she shared zero DNA with Fly Creek Jane Doe, which was an important indicator that this second DNA relative was related to Jane Doe along her paternal line. Further, this second DNA relative shared no DNA with the top DNA relative, the one with 110 centimorgans in common. This meant that the genealogist had likely figured out two separate branches of Jane Doe's family tree. A helpful tool that the genealogist can use shows them the matches of matches. In other words, they can run a search for DNA relatives that both their subject and a specific DNA relative or group of relatives have in common. This allows the genealogist to figure out additional DNA relatives of their subject and determine which tree branches they fall under, based on who the DNA says they're related to. In this case, a DNA relative that the top DNA relative and Jane Doe shared in common proved to share 39 centimorgans in common with Jane Doe, a third cousin once removed, on the same side of her family as the top DNA relative. Building out this side of the tree and finding where these DNA relatives converged led to the ancestral marriage of a John Walkie, born in Virginia in 1811, and a Francis Kerchival, born in 1817 in Ohio. The genealogist ran the same matches-of-matches matches search for Jane Doe's second-highest DNA relative, the Canadian woman with 46 centimorgans in common along Jane Doe's paternal line. This Canadian woman's heritage included Nova Scotian and Ontarian roots. The genealogist discovered that there was a DNA relative who shared 45 centimorgans with Jane Doe, who had connections to a family with the surname Brown, rooted primarily in Nova Scotia and DNA relative number two also had the name Brown in her family. So the genealogist was hoping to find where these two ancestral lines connected. She looked to see if any descendants of the Walkie-Kerchival marriage had migrated toward the Pacific Northwest and married into a Canadian-based family with Browns in their background. She followed the descendants from this ancestral marriage down their lineage to the top DNA relative, Mr. 110, looking for descendants who had moved to the West Coast. 
and she found one. This was the top DNA relative's great-grandfather, who had moved west from the Virginia area. But she could not find an intermarriage between this man and anyone from Canada. She had decided to look at this great-grandfather's siblings and see if any of them had also moved west. And sure enough, his sister had left Virginia and moved to Chicago. And while in Chicago, this woman had married a Canadian who had browns in his family tree. This was the marriage between Elizabeth Fleming of Virginia, whose mother was a Walkie, and Andrew Morden, whose mother's maiden name was Brown, and she was from Nova Scotia. She was a great-great-aunt of DNA relative number one. This meant that Andrew Morden and Elizabeth Fleming were either the grandparents or great-grandparents of Fly Creek Jane Doe. Elizabeth and Andrew lived in Chicago and had three children, including a son, Andrew Morden Jr., He, in turn, also had a son, Andrew Morden III, another son, R, and a daughter, S. Andrew Morden III had died in Washington State in 1999. This sounded very promising. Andrew Morden III was the right age to perhaps be the father of Fly Creek Jane Doe, and of course, he was in the exact right location. But the genealogist could not locate any children of this Andrew Morden. She couldn't even be certain that he had been married. She recommended that the Clark County authorities conduct reference testing to determine whether she was on the right track with this Andrew Morden III. They needed to find a living relative of his, and hence of Fly Creek Jane Doe's, to test. But almost all of the family was deceased. The closest living relative the genealogist could see in the family tree was a suspected first cousin of Fly Creek Jane Doe, a woman named Leslie Brophy. Leslie was the daughter of Andrew Morden III's sister, S. In September of 2019, Detective Schultz contacted Leslie by phone and asked her for a reference sample. Leslie was happy to oblige. Detective Schultz told KGW8, quote, For her, it was just as exciting as it was for me. It was really a cold call where I identified myself and asked her if the information I was providing her made any sense, and right away, she said, You're calling about my cousin Sandy. She was. Leslie's reference sample was kinship tested against the DNA of Fly Creek Jane Doe. The results showed that she shared 834 centimorgans with Fly Creek Jane Doe. They were first cousins. Fly Creek Jane Doe was Sandra Renee Morden, known as Sandy. Leslie said her cousin Sandy had gone missing sometime in the 1970s. She was able to provide some photos and family history that helped Detective Schultz flesh out Sandy's story, including that she had been born in the month of April in California and was about Leslie's age. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Once Sandy was identified, CCSO detectives started a homicide investigation from square one, focusing on victimology. Because now that they knew who Sandy was, statistically, odds were they could figure out who killed her by looking into those who played a part in her life. 
They dug into everything they could find about Sandra Morden, her background, her family, her friends and acquaintances, her habits, hobbies, and home life. Sandy was born in San Francisco on April 29, 1962, to father A. B. Morden and mother Catherine Irene Long Morden, according to her birth certificate. It's unclear when exactly her parents married, but the little family moved to the Portland area from San Francisco in the late 1960s. They moved to Vancouver, Washington sometime after that. Kathy and Andy divorced in Oregon in February 1971. Both parents lived in the Portland and Vancouver areas, but they bounced around from place to place quite a bit, and Sandy didn't have much of a home life. Andy was a Korean War vet and tugboat deckhand who worked the Willamette and Columbia Rivers supporting the large cargo ships that serviced the area's dominant logging, pulp, and paper industries. What this meant was that he was gone for two-week stretches at a time, working on the water. Despite his regular absences, Andy was awarded primary custody of Sandy, although it's possible that Kathy had custody for short time periods. Reports are that Andy and Kathy were not in contact. However, Sandy's cousin Leslie provided some photos of Sandy and her dad Andy that seemed to show them smiling and clowning around in their 1970s clothing, and the handwritten photo caption reads, November 7, 1974, dinner at Kathy's. It's unclear whether the Kathy referred to was Sandy's mom, and Andy and Kathy had made peace. Apparently, Sandy's mom usually went by Irene, so we just don't know. The lack of communication between Andrew and his ex-wife would come into play later when their daughter went missing. From what investigators have been able to piece together, Sandy was shuffled around quite a bit between her parents. She went to school in different states and also lived with multiple other families during Andy's tugboat shifts. She attended Mead Middle School, now Harrison Park Middle School, as a 7th grader in Portland from 1974 to 1975, living with a family there. She attended Geyser Middle School in Vancouver, Washington, in 1975 and 1976, again residing with a local family. She attended Wilson High School in Portland in the 1976 to 1977 school year, staying with a family in Burlingame. She was registered at Newburgh High School in Newburgh, Oregon for the fall 1977 term. And that's where the trail of Sandra Morden comes to a dead end. Investigators were able to gather some helpful information from Leslie Brophy, Sandy's cousin, whose DNA was instrumental in identifying her. She told investigators that in spring 1977, Sandy and Andy were living in a mobile home RV park near Leichner Road, north of the Hazeldale area in Vancouver. Sandy had a beloved St. Bernard mix named Barfy, best dog name ever. Andy left on one of his two-week shifts, and sometime after May 1977, he returned to find Barfy locked in the RV, which the dog had pretty much destroyed, and no sign of Sandy. She was never seen again. Leslie told KOIN of Andy Morden, quote, He came home and she was gone, and so first he called my mom, and my grandmother at the time was still alive, and he called us and the search started, end quote. According to Leslie, Andy tried his hardest to find Sandy, but he believed she had left the area with her mother. Leslie has indicated that Kathy slash Irene Morden was not a responsible person, and she described her to KOIN as not mom material at all. She went on, quote, Sandy's mom abandoned her and apparently a previous family. Detective Schultz discovered before she married my uncle Andy, 
she had a relationship with someone down in San Francisco and had three children and left him to go become a movie star in Hollywood, end quote. Unfortunately, we do not have a specific time frame for when Sandy Morton disappeared. She is believed to have died in the spring of 1977, when she was around 16. Sergeant Neiman told me that since Sandy bounced around schools and shuffled back and forth between rootless parents and pseudo-foster homes, it's very difficult to reconstruct her exact movements. Investigators are now trying to determine any relationships Sandy may have had, friends from school, boyfriends, and so on, and contact those people to see if they have relevant information. Andy reportedly hired a PI to find Sandy, but investigators have not been able to locate this PI. And in a huge blow to the investigation into who killed Sandra Morden, the investigators learned that Kathy passed away in San Francisco in 1988 and Andy died in Owaco, Pacific County, Washington, in 1999. Sandy didn't have any siblings and didn't live in any one place for an extended period of time. Finding people who might know what happened to her is proving to be incredibly challenging. There is one weird clue in this case that is eerie considering the time frame. Once Fly Creek Jane Doe was identified, Detective Lindsay Schultz located something in the Oregonian's classified section on April 29, 1977, a tiny ad that read, Sandra Renee Morden, happy 15th birthday, love always, mom. It appears from this ad that Kathy possibly did not know where her daughter was or was unable to reach her for some reason. Detective Schultz, who worked this case until she recently departed from the CCSO, said there were no records indicating that Sandy was ever in trouble at school or with law enforcement. Nor is it clear whether a missing persons report was ever filed with regard to Sandy. Investigators have not been able to locate any such report, although that could be due to various filing, clerical, record retention, or other issues that beleaguer cases like this one that span decades and predate NCIC. Investigators now believe Sandy disappeared right around or shortly after the time of the classified ad. Essentially, they're in the dark as to Sandy's whereabouts between approximately May 1977 and when Fly Creek Jane Doe's remains were found in February 1980. Based on the extremely decomposed condition of her remains, it seems likely that she was killed within months of her last sighting. So what happened to Sandy Morden, who was just around 16 when she was brutally killed and dumped near Fly Creek, about a 40-minute drive from where she was living with her father in the RV in Hazel Dell? Sadly, her fate remains a mystery. Until she was identified, she was theorized to possibly be a victim of local suspected serial killer Warren Forrest. Forrest was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Krista K. Blake in 1974. But he is also the prime suspect in the rapes and murders of five other young women in the Vancouver area. He left his victims in remote areas of Clark County, just like Fly Creek Jane Doe. But after they learned that Fly Creek Jane Doe was Sandy Morden, who was believed to be alive in the spring of 1977, the investigators had to rule Forrest out. He was already incarcerated at that time. Someone else violently ended the life of Sandy Morden whom KATU described as appearing older than her 15 years. Someone who drove her, likely already dead or unconscious, to the little used access road along Fly Creek in the middle of nowhere and left her there. Sergeant Neiman told me that because all they recovered in Sandy's case is some of her bones, there is no DNA from her suspected killer that could lead them in the right direction. 
tracking down potential suspects like people who lived in the trailer park where Sandy was believed to be living and linking them to her death will be incredibly difficult. For her case to be solved, investigators will need someone to come forward with information about what happened to Sandy. By the way, in February of this year, a jury found Warren Forrest guilty of the murder of 17-year-old Martha Morrison of Portland. This from CBS News, quote, Morrison's remains were discovered October 12, 1974, by members of a hunting party in a densely wooded area of Dole Valley in eastern Clark County. The remains weren't identified until 2015, when her DNA, in the form of blood evidence, was discovered on the grip of a dart gun found at Forrest's home, end quote. If you have any information on the life of Sandra Renee Morden, please call the cold case tip line at 564-397-2036 or email coldcase at clark.wa.gov. Thank you to Sergeant Fred Neiman Jr. of the Clark County Sheriff's Office for speaking with me about this case. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to DNA ID podcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.